0: Please hear the word of God as I read Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you. Deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed... "'Therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. "'I said in my haste, all men are liars. "'What shall I render to the Lord "'for all his benefits toward me? "'I will take up the cup of salvation "'and call upon the name of the Lord. "'I will pay my vows to the Lord "'now in the presence of all of his people. "'Precious in the sight of the Lord "'is the death of his saints. "'O Lord, truly I am your servant.' I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Now in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of God and may God by his spirit teach us and convict us according to his will this morning. You may be seated. Have you ever been in the midst of a trial in which there seemed to be no hope in getting out or no hope of an end? Perhaps a trial that would be like being stuck in a maze in the dark, or maybe if you like to in a cave, being stuck in a cave without any idea of how to get out, and the walls close in, it's pitch black, there's no sense of direction let alone of how to get out. Perhaps you felt like David in Psalm 119, which some of us are reading this week. As David descends to the low points of affliction of Psalm 119, in the fourth stanza, he says, My soul clings to the dust. My soul melts from heaviness and grief. And then the eleventh stanza, the lowest point of Psalm 119, he says, My soul faints. My eyes fail. I have become like wineskin in smoke. And all he can say is, help me. Perhaps you've had that helpless feeling, completely helpless feeling, in which all you can do is to cry out to the Lord for help. And if help does not come, then the sense, whether in reality or whether metaphorically, surely you will die, there's nothing left to do. Well, Psalm 116 is meant as medicine for the soul for such a trial it's meant to be meditated upon in the midst of or in the wake of such a danger psalm 116 is one of the most intensely personal psalms of the psalter it really is a hymn written by an individual celebrating God's deliverance from trial and sickness so severe that he was convinced he was going to die if help would not come It really is a poem about prayer and thanksgiving to a merciful God who helps the helpless. And the first two verses set the stage and the flavor for the whole psalm. If you look at the first two verses of the psalm, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. And so it begins with, I love the Lord, which is unique, is it not? I love the Lord... It shows the uniqueness and the intensity of it. But why does he say, I love the Lord? Well, it says, because he has heard my voice and my supplications, my pleading for mercy. He has heard. The psalmist is already in the past called out for mercy from his God, and God has heard him and answered him. And he goes on to say, because he has inclined his ear to me literally inclined his ear to me means he's he's bent down to my level he's condescended to me to hear me like a parent or a teacher who might get down on one knee to talk to a child at his level to hear to show the child who maybe is concerned no I'm here I'm at your level I'm I'm near to you this is what God has done for the psalmist the righteous Lord of the universe has condescended to hear the helpless pleas and call from the helpless. And so the psalmist says in verse 2, Therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. In the past, the psalmist called out for help to his gracious and merciful Lord, who inclined and bent over to hear and to answer. And so now the psalmist basically says, If that is how the Lord is in the past, I will call upon this merciful God as long as I live. And you see the pattern of calling out in prayer, getting an answer, and so continuing to call out, and getting an answer, and continuing to call out, and so on and so forth. Throughout the psalm, you have the phrase, I called or I will call at least four different times. And then there's a sense of several times, not the same word, but the sense of in deliverance, in response, in response. And it shows that God cares for those who are helpless. He inclines his ear. He bends down to hear in humble, compassionate care. Have you ever heard anybody say, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves? Well, if you do hear that, you could calmly and, and, and humbly say, well, that's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, that actually makes no sense, does it? That God helps those who help themselves. If someone can help himself, then God's help is pretty much irrelevant anyway. But actually what the scripture says is God cares for the helpless. He helps the helpless. He helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's the definition of God's mercy upon helpless sinners. He hears the prayers of and he saves those who cannot help. Save themselves. James Montgomery Boyce, whom many of you know, if I preach on the Psalms, then it probably sounds a lot like James Montgomery Boyce. I'm much indebted to his commentaries and his helps through the Psalms. But James Montgomery Boyce entitled his study of of Psalm 116, Help of the Helpless. Help of the Helpless. And that was due to a key line in the first verse of the hymn, Abide With Me, which we'll sing at the end of our worship this morning on hymn number 335. And we'll basically be following Boyce's outline and thoughts in our sermon, and we'll follow through the hymn, Abide With Me. And the first verse of Henry Light's hymn, Abide With Me, goes like this. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And the hymn will go on to tell of the present and continual help and mercy of God for the helpless. Why? Because we need it. Notice I said we, and we need it the first time, and we need it continuously. We are helpless without God's help and mercy. O help of the helpless, abide with me, is an apt description of Psalm 116. And if you look in the bulletin, you'll see an outline for what we'll use to go through Psalm 116. And I'm a little bit embarrassed of this outline. Maybe it's my math teacher background. It's just not full of much order. It seems kind of scattered. But Psalm 116, I present to you, is scattered. There's really not a helpful outline to this psalm, and it does kind of bother me, but it's understandable because of the nature of Psalm 116. The psalmist is rejoicing after the God of mercy is inclined to help him, to bend down to help him in time of danger and helplessness. And think of yourself... If you haven't been there, you will before your life is over. Think of yourself when kneeling in prayer in a time of desperate distress. When you don't know what else there is to do and you're crying out for help. In moments like that, do you pray in an outline? Roman numeral 1, 2, A, B, C. Or do the words come as the troubled heart allows them to come as it flows from a troubled heart? And afterwards, when God has delivered you from your difficulty, and you're you're rejoicing to the Father, do you have an outline then, as you pray in thanksgiving, or does it just flow as it flows from your amazed heart in response to such a wonderful, gracious, and merciful God? In the same way, Psalm one sixteen is somewhat scattered, as the psalmist's words just seem to flow. Yet there's a basic functional division of two parts, I think. That's what the two main points will be. There's a functional division of two parts. In fact, the Septuagint separates Psalm 116 into two parts, into two Psalms, actually. It actually breaks at verse 9 and starts back up in verse 10. And some of the Hebrew manuscripts of Psalm 116 breaks it into two as well. But it ends with verse 11 and then starts back up with verse 12, which to me makes the most sense. As verses 1 through 11 present what God did for the psalmist. Verses 1 through 11 present what God did for the psalmist. And then verses 12 through 19 are the response. What is the psalmist's response to God's great mercy that was given to him? And you can see more details, perhaps, which might be helpful as we go along through Psalm 116. And I'll say that due to the length of Psalm 116, we'll not be able to go through verse by verse as we might normally do, but we will spot check the psalm and cover the main ideas and emotions of the psalm that flow from it, and we will use the outline you can see inside your bulletin. So verses 1 through 11, which I think is a good first half of the psalm, what did God do for the psalmist in verses 1 through 11? I think the one main thing an obvious thing we can see from verses 1 through 11 is God delivered the psalmist from the threshold of the grave. He delivered the psalmist from the threshold of the grave. Of course, he can do the same thing for you. Whether this is a real event in the psalmist's life where he's in danger, maybe he was sick to the point of death, Maybe he felt danger physically from something. Maybe it was metaphorical that his trial was so, so hard upon him, he had a sense of death and dire straits upon him. We don't know, and maybe that's helpful for the Psalms, when we don't actually know what the background is. But we know in some sense, the psalmist felt like he was going to die in travail. And in some sense, God delivered him from the threshold of the grave. Let's look at a few verses that show this. Let's look at verse 3. We've read verses 1 and 2, but look at verse 3. In verse 3, the psalmist says, "The pains of death surrounded me." The pains could be interpreted or translated the snares or as our Psalter says, "the cords of death surrounded him." Entangled him. It has this picture of being entangled in the cords of death. And you can't get out. It binds him. And it goes on to say, The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. Sheol is the place of the dead. It represents the grave. It's saying the anguish, the terrors of the grave, or the terrors of death have come upon me, and I can't get free. He says in verse 3, I found trouble and sorrow Distress and anguish was upon him. Psalm 116c says, In deep distress I grieve and trouble found. And so the psalmist is helpless, and he's in need of great deliverance. You look at verse 6. He then says, The Lord preserves the simple. We'll talk about what simple actually means a little bit later. But the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. It's another way of saying, I was in great need. I was brought very low and I was helpless. And to me, he gave salvation. In verse 8, For you have delivered my soul from death. This is a beautiful verse. You've delivered my soul from death. My eyes from tears and my feet from falling or my feet from stumbling. A memorable verse. This shows that God had answered the psalmist. He had taken care of him, and he'd helped the helpless. Even verse 10, I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. It speaks of the depth of his sorrow. And then verse 16, which I know is from the second half, but, you know, this is a scattered psalm. So verse 16 echoes the same thought in verse sixteen, O Lord, I am truly your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. You freed me from my chains, like I was shackled up in my sorrow and death, but you set me free. So, what we see here is that God had delivered the psalmist from the threshold of the grave, from death itself in some way. And again, what was the affliction? We can't know for sure. But if we take it at face value, we assume there's some sort of sickness or trial to the point of death and God in his mercy delivered him from it. I think one thing we can learn from this is in the midst of trial or affliction, it is always helpful to think of God and his helps as linked to the past, present, and future. In the midst of trial or affliction, it's always helpful to think of God and his helps as linked to to the past, to the present, and the future. In the psalm, God heard the cries of the psalmist in the past, in the psalmist's prayer to him. Therefore, he hears him now, is what he's saying, and he will hear him in the future as well. God delivered him then, and therefore he will deliver us now, and he will deliver us in the future as well. In the time of trouble, we can always look back to see what God has done in the past. He hasn't changed. His character doesn't change. He is unchanging. And so he will do the same and have the same character both now and in the future. And we can trust in this. This link is only helpful because God is unchanging. Everything connected to human beings... And everything else constantly changes. Have you noticed this? That even you, you ebb and flow with life with your own frailty. One day as a Christian you wake up in the morning say, I'm going to conquer the world for Christ. And the next morning you can't even get yourself out of bed. And even the things of life that seem the most stable will ebb and flow. One day... The sun will not rise. One day the heavens and the earth will indeed pass away and be replaced. But only God changest not. Only God changest not, and his compassions they fail not. And so we can count on him, our unchanging God, to do in the present and to do in the future what he has done in the past. Because he does not change. Alexander McLaren comments on this in this way God's past is the guarantee and the revelation of his future. God's past is the guarantee and revelation of his future. And every person that grasps him in faith has the right to pray with assurance. And so we see. The second verse of Abide With Me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. And so we see the psalmist has been delivered from a sure death. And we see the psalmist is trusted that his gracious, merciful God who is eternal and unchangeable and what he has done in the past can be trusted in what he is going to do now so that he can call on him all the rest of his life. But it's interesting, the end of this first half of the psalm, verses 10 and 11, is rather odd, is it not? Look at verses 10 and 11. The, the end of this first half ends in an odd way. That's an odd thing to put in an in a outline, but that's what we have. In verses 10 and 11, I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, or maybe better translated, I said in my alarm, all men are liars, or all men are false. not an odd thing to say at the end of this first half of the the psalm. I think, though there are various attempts to try to explain what the psalmist is saying here, I think the best thing is to see this in relationship to the context with the psalmist compared to and how he's trusting in his unchangeable God. The psalmist glories in his gracious, righteous, and merciful God, and unchangeably so. Gracious, righteous, and merciful. And he's determined to trust in his God who changes not. But then as often happens, and maybe you've seen this in your own life, maybe you can think of Isaiah who comes before the throne. You think of the disciples when Jesus calms the sea. As often happens, when we see God as he is, then we we begin to see ourselves as we really are as well. And we see our own desperate condition. I think the psalmist is seeing his own desperate condition. He's not just seeing the affliction that he is in, but he's seeing the sinfulness and the frailty that he is, the condition that he is. He sees God as he is and he trusts in him, and then he sees his own affliction and condition. And so, after believing or trusting in his God, he exclaims of a greater affliction, a greater alarm. That all men, all mankind, which includes himself, are liars. They are false. And they are sinners before God. And so the psalmist becomes all the more amazed at his God. That such a God who is perfect and holy and righteous and unchangeable. Would actually incline and bend down to his level. Who is the opposite of all of these things. And bend down to hear his cry and then to act and deliver him from his trial. And he becomes all the more amazed at his God and rejoicing in his God. And this might explain why at the very beginning of the psalm, the psalmist begins with, right out of the gates, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. The psalmist understands, as we should, the distance between sinful man and holy God and rejoices all the more in such a merciful God. And we know the full story that through Christ Jesus we redeem such sinners and help the helpless. That was rather a quick way of going through verses 1 through 11. But rather than walking through this first half of the psalm as we normally would, I'd like us to pull out five points or five conclusions that are scattered throughout the first half of the psalm and really maybe even venturing a little bit into the second half as well. And these points or conclusions will come from some reflections, some meditations that James Boyce has given, at least based on those. The psalmist experienced such a dire strait of sure and helpless death, and he had to call out to God for mercy and experienced God's condescension to help the helpless. And it left a profound impression on him as it should have, and if you've gone through something similar, it should have with you as well. And I want to look at five clear and powerful reflections or meditations to help us to see an increasing appreciation and amazement of God's mercy and his helps by the psalmist. And I really do think Psalm 116 is one of those psalms that is best benefited by meditating upon it, looking at it, thinking about it, chewing on it, and the different aspects of what the psalmist says. So five Five thoughts or conclusions drawn from this first half of the psalm. Number one, and they are listed in your, in your bulletin. Number one, look at verse five. That The Lord is gracious, righteous, and merciful. The Lord is gracious, righteous, and merciful. Verse five says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. And out of those three things, gracious, righteous, and merciful, maybe one of those three things stand out. You know, grace and, and mercy kind of we get those mixed up and they kind of go together, but righteous in the middle of it. And I think the psalmist puts that in there. He is righteous as a reminder of who God is compared to who he is. The idea then is that God is righteous, and he has no obligation to bend and to hear and to answer such a sinner as me, because he is holy and righteous. And thus, God's grace and mercy and hearing and answering is all the more abundant and amazing considering that He is perfectly righteous. Of course, we know that God's righteousness and His grace and His mercy all do come together in the work and the cross of Christ. God's righteousness demands justice upon our sin. And Christ came in grace and mercy To fulfill the law and to satisfy this justice, which should never cease to amaze you. And you must come to this righteous God through him. The second thought, the Lord is gracious, righteous, and merciful. The second thought is, the Lord preserves the simple. The Lord preserves the simple. Now you might be thinking simple just means unintelligent. Actually it's worse than that. And it's speaking about you, so... So check your self-esteem at the door. The Lord preserves the simple. It has the idea of the undeserving, insignificant, foolish one. If you want to be wordy, maybe this is the amplified version. The Lord preserves the undeserving, insignificant, foolish ones. And you can all raise your hands. Which means that the Lord's grace and mercy, even though he is righteous, his grace and mercy upon sinners is even further amplified because it's applied to the insignificant, foolish ones like ourselves. We see this throughout Scripture. Jesus chose fishermen and tax collectors for disciples. The lowly angels appeared to the shepherds when Jesus was born to the lowly. Christ himself So he's the son of God. He's eternally God. He took on flesh and he became lowly born in a stable to poor parents. With the rumor abound of of out of out of wedlock birth. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, we read, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world Raise your hand. To put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So the Lord is gracious and righteous and merciful. And even more so, he preserves the simple, weak, and foolish. And the third thing then is, you look at verse 7. Those simple sinners can return to their rest in God, all the more. It says in verse 7, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. When a believer turns to God in time of trial and God answers, he's able to rest sooner and longer than before. There's a buildup of this. Have you ever been in that situation where you've gone through a feeling of death, but God delivers you from it, and then as peace comes after the storm, that peace is greater than anything you've known before, and you want to kind of hold on to it, remember it, you should for the next time that a trial comes and you'll be prepared and each time that we're brought through a trial there's there's growing there's strengthening god uses every trial to deepen our trust in him and to deepen our rest in him as well so the next time something happens we're ready and we're prepared and verse seven not only says that we can return in our rest but verse seven says for the lord has dealt bountifully with you Again, there's an increase as we go through this psalm. There's an increase. What grace and mercy. It's a bountiful caring. Not only does the righteous God give helps to sinners who are simple and foolish and insignificant. He gives it bountifully in abundant excess to them. What help to the helpless we have from our God. That leads us to the fourth point in verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death. The Lord delivers our souls from death. But why? Verse 9, So that we might walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The Lord delivers our souls from death, so we may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Everything we've seen so far in these first three points are wonderful, and it builds on each other, but it gets even better. God delivers us not merely so we can celebrate the grace and mercy of our God, and rest in it and enjoy it, but that also we might live for Him and walk with Him and follow after Him. You see, this is even more amplified. We, we have meaningful work to do for our God, not to earn His favor. Because He's changed us and given us Purpose. The righteous God helps sinners, he preserves the simple, and then he deals with them bountifully, and then he gives them life, and he gives them work to do, and for his glory. There is work to do. Resting in God is a matter of confidence in God, but walking before him has to do with our obedience to him. And if a believer has been spared from death, it is so that he might be useful to God, To do his work as his servant. Do you see the greater blessing and the greater bounty? It's not just us, it's great. It's great and I get to actually serve our God. It's mercy that he called us at all, but he called us to do eternally valuable work for him as long as we live. Which leads us to the fifth point. The Lord is gracious and righteous and merciful to sinners he preserves sinners who are simple and insignificant and they can then can return to the rest in their god all the more and understand this great bounty that keeps growing and he delivers us from death so we might live and walk before him and then verse 15 i'm skipping ahead to the second half but that's okay precious in the sight of the lord is the death of his saints precious in the sight of the lord is the death of his saints Hey, wait, that's, that's building more and more We're talking about dying now no, it actually does build I think precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints James Boyce said God is particularly close to his people when they stand at death's door God is particularly close to his people when they stand at death's door God watches over his people when they are sick or dying coming close to them and making his presence known so that they have comfort in death's hour he also frequently intervenes and does not allow them to perish in either case the lord does what is best and one thing is for certain the people of god are immortal until their work on earth is done that's a phrase that you should keep hold of for the rest of your life the people of god are immortal until their work on earth is done what that implies is when your work on earth is done, the Lord receives you to himself with great joy. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We know death for the believer is not to be feared because it's our entrance into glory. Paul tells the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because at death the soul departs to be with the Lord, which is better by far, Paul says. But stop to think, why would the death of his saints be precious in the sight of the Lord? We know why it might be a gain for us, but why would the death of his saints be precious in the sight of the Lord? Well, just as we long to be in God's presence without sin to cloud our view, don't we? We long for Christ to come back because then sin will be eradicated everywhere but in us and then we can worship God without sin in between. We can fellowship with one another without sin in between. So we long to be in God's presence without sin to cloud our view like it does now. Well, just as we long for this, it would seem that our Lord longs to have us in his presence without sin to cloud our view as well that our Lord longs to have us in his presence without sin to cloud our view as well. After all, he inclines himself to hear us, but he didn't have to, and to deliver us, and to give us life and to guide us in our work. And when our work is done, he delights to welcome his loved ones, Who are recipients of his grace and mercy, he delights to welcome his loved ones home. I think it's a beautiful thought. We long to be without sin. Christ gave his life to have a blameless, spotless church, and he will present his church to the Father in that way. God looks forward to the time when this will happen, and so he delights to welcome his loved ones home. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The fourth verse of abide with me says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears, no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. So That's the first half of the psalm, more or less. Verses twelve through nineteen, then what the psalmist will do in response, which also then outlines what we should be doing in response, but what the psalmist will do in response in verses twelve through nineteen. You may have forgot, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up my the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of his people in the courts of all of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Notice the last half of the psalm begins with, How can I repay the Lord for his goodness to me? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits that he's given towards me? Obviously, there's nothing that we can do to repay God about anything. Romans 11.35 makes that clear, if you didn't know that already. We, We cannot repay God for anything he's done for us. No one can ever give God anything. Every good gift comes from him. But we can respond to God's goodness. Respond to his help of the helpless, according to this psalm. So how can we respond to God's mercy and grace and compassionate helps? Well, I think there's two major ways from the remainder of the psalm. Number one, we need to tell others about God's mercy to us. And number two, we need to take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The first one, look at verses 18 and 19. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. We need to tell others about God's mercy to us. There should be a public testimony given to God's redeeming grace, his mercy, and his helps. Even verse 17 speaks of thanksgiving being a part of this testimony. It should be a natural thing to publicly proclaim to our brethren and to all about the grace and the mercy and the redeeming grace and mercy of our God. We are quick to tell others of our own exploits, maybe our problems especially, maybe our kids' exploits. Hey, you know what my son did today? And just wait for the Christmas letter, I suppose. We're quick to tell others about products that have really done the job for us in some way. Maybe the latest sports conquest of our favorite athlete or team. Maybe the controversies on Twitter and Facebook, whatever it might be. Those are the things we're quick to talk about, but we should be quicker to tell of the righteous God's mercy, grace, and helps given to us. We should be quicker to tell of our righteous God's mercy, grace, and helps, and especially given for sinning simple ones like ourselves and dealing bountifully with us and giving us eternal life and work to do, even so much so that when our time on earth is done, It's a precious thing, even to our God. We should be quick to tell others about our God and His grace. A second thing, and there's more, but a second thing out of two today that we can respond in is you look in verse 13. We should take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. We should take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 13 says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. See, that's where that point comes from. And though when you look at verse 13, it's another of those verses. Like, think, what's, what's going on here? At first, it could appear this is speaking of a drink offering that someone would give to God. In fact, he does say, how can I repay? How can I render to you according to what you've done? It's better understood that the psalmist is not giving anything to God because he knows better. You can't give anything to God. But instead, he's taking of something from God. Namely, he's taking of the cup of salvation. He's taking of the cup of salvation. It's a picture of lifting it up and having it filled for him and then partaking of it. And Boyce said, this is a profound insight. The only way we can repay God from whom everything comes is by taking even more from Him. Does that sound odd to you? The only way we can repay God from whom everything comes is by taking even more from Him. Spurgeon noted that this is the wisest of all possible replies. And then Spurgeon quoted this verse. I'm assuming he made it up. He's apt to do these things. Spurgeon says this in response to this taking up the cup of salvation. The best return... For one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. I'll repeat that. Sounds like Isaac Watts. The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. That's really a summary of Psalm 116. The idea is this, I will take more of this cup of salvation because I need it and for your glory, O God. This is the best way to repay our Lord, to depend upon him, to feed upon him, to glory in him and for his glory as we are created and then recreated to do. And then notice in verse 13 that after taking up the cup of salvation, what does the psalmist do? Well, I read it. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see a cycle here in this psalm? Do you see the theme of this psalm? The psalmist cries out to the Lord for help. The Lord heard him and delivered him. He answered him. He bent down to answer him. And then God gave him mercy from the cup of salvation. And therefore, the psalmist says, I will call upon the Lord as long as I live. You see the cycle. Crying out to the Lord for help. You're delivered. He gives mercy and salvation. Therefore, the psalmist says, I'll call upon the Lord again. And again. And again. It should be the pattern of our lives. Forever asking and receiving from God's mercy, from His bounty. You see the same thing in verses 16 and 17. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. In other words, I'm just a servant. You're the master. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and I will call upon the name of the Lord again. He's already done it, but he's going to do it again because it works so well the first time and the second time and the third time. It does remind me of Psalm 123, the first Couple verses of Psalm 123. It's the same thing in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 123. Unto you I lift up my eyes, rather a famous verse. O you who dwell in the heavens, that's Psalm 123, verse 1. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Until he has mercy on us. Our relationship to our God should be that of Humility, looking to his hand alone for helps as a servant looks to his master who has to depend upon him on everything and for everything. And Boyce says our dependence on God and submission to God should be no less total than the most obedient servant of an earthly master. We're not just to be obedient to our God, but we are dependent upon him for everything. And glory be that he gives us everything we need in his mercy looking for both provision and direction what to do until he has mercy on us. And you see the same thing in Christ Jesus. We can look to what Christ has done in the past. You think of the cross and continues to do now in his intercession for us and what he guarantees in the future with his return. And therefore, we can look to the hand of our master now for help and call upon him in time of need for everything. And so we see the response of the need to tell others, but then the need to continue to take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In closing, I think it's helpful to point out that Psalm 116 was one of the psalms that would normally be sung around Passover. So it would be one of the Hillel psalms that would be sung around Passover. So it's interesting that the Lord Jesus and his disciples would have sung Psalm 116 at the last supper can you imagine that and so the cup of salvation mentioned in psalm 116 could have represented the blood of christ poured out as an atonement for the sins of his people could have represented the cup of wrath that our lord completely consumed that was poured out upon him as he took the righteous wrath of god that was earned by our sins And Psalm 116, like most psalms, speaks of Christ. Psalm 116 speaks of Christ. Christ Jesus, verse 3, was the one who suffered the pains of death in Sheol. But death had no hold upon him and his body saw no decay. Verse 4, Christ found great trouble and sorrow, calling out to the Father for deliverance. You think of him praying in the garden and even, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Verse 5, he showed forth the graciousness, the righteousness, and the mercy of God for all sinners to see. In Verse 6, Christ was the one who was brought low so that we could be saved and given rest so that we could be dealt with bountifully by our God through him verse 7 verse 8 christ is the only one who can deliver your soul from death your eyes from tears and your feet from falling and he's the one who rose from the dead to conquer death and to be able to deliver you and to raise you spiritually from the dead to walk before the lord in the land of the living verse 9 Can you imagine the sorrow and the joy going through Christ's mind as he sang with his disciples Psalm 116 on the eve of his crucifixion? Perhaps especially when they sang, I believe, therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Because Christ would soon say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he still trusts in his Father to carry out the work of salvation for us. When thinking of these things, we can join with Christ in a sense in that song with the very last phrase, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And Because of Christ, we can be delivered from our sin and unto his, this merciful God who helps the helpless. And it's the only possible deliverance because we are totally helpless and dependent upon him and his grace and mercy. And If we're outside of Christ Jesus, understand that you must kneel before your master in repentance of sin and faith in Christ. You must look to the hand of your master, Jesus Christ, as your only hope for helps and salvation. Only his life, only his work, only his righteousness, only his death, only his resurrection will do. You must lift up the cup of salvation to him that he might fill it to the brim calling on the name of the Lord that he would save you. and Then you can join with the saints and sing the promise that we find in the last verse of Abide With Me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I do pray that this scattered, rather incomplete survey of Psalm 116 would be used by your spirit, Lord, to be applied to our hearts in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever situation we will find ourselves in. Oh God, we thank you and we praise you that you are the help of the helpless and you give help to the helpless. Strengthen us. Guide us, direct us in our walk, in our life, in the land of the living, in Christ Jesus. That we would have rest in you. We'd rejoice in you. We would not just know of, but we would experience the bounty that you give us in your grace and your mercy and your righteousness through Christ. And Lord, we'd be serious to rejoice in the work you've given us to do. Not to gain your favor. We can have no more favor in you than we have on the day that Christ has saved us because our favor is found in Christ and not in us. But we can have such joy that we're created and recreated for by living for you as your precious saints, who even in death, it will be precious to you, that you will rejoice with us, that we'll be without sin at that point. I pray, Lord, for those who are outside of Christ, Lord, that at least a glimpse of the the beauty of Christ in the depth of their sin could be seen that they had come running to Christ and his cross. And so I am the helpless and you're the only help I can have. Please save me. Here's my cup of salvation. Fill it to the brim as you've taken the, the cup of wrath to the brim in my place. And I pray that you would save sinners today. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.